Welcome back. When discussing black city history in the United States, there are certain cities that always get recognition, like Harlem, Birmingham, Chicago, and our sister city, Baltimore. However, the district has its own stories of black city life, and much of it revolves around historic U Street. We're joined now by Brianna Thomas to talk about her new book, Black Broadway in Washington, D.C., her book is a detailed history of the rise of black culture in the de- in the district. Brianna Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, uh, thank you for having me. Brianna, where did the idea for this book come from? What sparked your interest in U Street? Yeah, so uh, what was my initial introduction into researching U Street was uh, my book is actually an expansion of a photo story essay that I uh, produced for Washingtonian Magazine when I was working there as a fellow in 2016. Uh, one of the editors asked around uh, to the interns about this neighborhood known as U Street during the golden years of Black Broadway. And I initially um, remembered immediately Uh, Black Broadway and kind of hearing these stories from my grandmother who told me about her time on U Street uh, when she moved to D.C. in the 40s and 50s. And so I jumped on the project and I compiled this photo story essay, which featured the last remaining black owned businesses from the Black Broadway era, which is Industrial Savings Bank, Lee's Flower and Card Shop and Ben's Chili Bowl. And uh, after that published, it is now expanded into this book that was released this year. And so that's how I started researching. And um, I just have a strong connection to U Street from the stories that I've heard from, um, you know, my family and different members of the community. Where did U Street get the name Black Broadway and why is that important? So the name Black Broadway uh, stems directly from what people would recognize as Broadway, the theater district in New York. And so who was credited um, with coining the term Black Broadway, a lot of researchers give Pearl Bailey, who is a D.C. native and a well-known singer during the Black Broadway era, which is from the early 1900s to about the mid-1900s. She's credited with coining the term Black Broadway. She got her start as a high stepper on the Howardettes, uh, who performed at the Howard Theater. And it's known as Black Broadway because just like Broadway in New York is a strip of uh, clubs or theaters and uh, supper clubs and things like that and very lit up and flashy, well, D.C. had the same vibe, but not just the same vibe, but had that vibe of (laughs) entertainment and partying even before there was an Apollo Theater, there was a Howard Theater. And so a lot of people are familiar with the Harlem Renaissance, but what they don't know is before there was a Harlem Renaissance, there was a D.C. Renaissance in the early 1900s. And so Black Broadway gets its name because a lot of the people that eventually made names for themselves in New York got their start in D.C. Um, People like Duke Ellington, who went on to compose more than 6,000 works, you know, actually grew up on T Street and uh, worked at Griffith Stadium, which is where Howard University Hospital is now located. So you have all of these great people, all these jazz artists, Louis Armstrong, you know, all of uh, Sarah Vaughn, Cab Calloway, they are all spending time playing on U Street and eventually take their talents to New York. We're talking with Brianna Thomas, author of the book Black Broadway in Washington, D.C. Brianna, the book begins with a detailed history of slavery in the district and the Civil War. Why? 
So the book has to begin with slavery because slavery is the foundation of Washington, D.C. Now, as horrid as that sounds, that is the horrible truth. Um, D.C. is chosen as the nation's capital in 1791. And although it's chosen to be this place of uh, freedom and independence, it's also a major slave market at this time because D.C. is situated between major slaveholding states, Maryland and Virginia. And so by 1800, slaves in Washington are outnumbering freed people by five to one. That's a a massive uh, difference when you look at that ratio. And so it was impossible to journal the golden years, if you will, or the glory days of U Street, which is Black Broadway and what it's known for, without starting at the very beginning, which is this culture of of slavery, this culture of uh, what we know is horrifying and moving into the Civil War and then eventually uh, the D.C. emancipation, which brought freedom to slaves uh, in D.C. before there were freedom for slaves anywhere else in the nation. After the Civil War, D.C.'s population more than doubled and the African-American population was almost 60,000. Yet, by 1920, less than a quarter of the district's residents were black. What happened to the black population? What put a stop to black migration into Washington, D.C.? Yeah, so you see this uh, population boom after the D.C. emancipation. Um, Black people are getting, starting to uh, make their own money. They are... uh, breaking these manumission laws where they can work for themselves and they're really starting to become a self-reliant community. And this does cause a mass migration to the city, especially as slaves from uh, the South are running away during the Civil War. But what causes this slowing of a migration is really what we see as this destruction of the Reconstruction era with the uh, inauguration of President Woodrow Wilson. He comes into office and he really rolls back all of the progress and the policies that black people have made for themselves. And to the point where uh, by 1925, there's barely 25% of D.C.'s population that's black. And that's the lowest that it had been since before the Civil War. And so what really causes this into a migration is because he institutes very strong and rigid segregation policies within the federal government. And these trickle down to other places. And so you may have had someone... Um, a black worker who was able to work at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, and he was a high-level worker. Well, when Woodrow Wilson comes into office, he now demotes these black workers. He now, uh, he's segregating washrooms and cafeterias and really snatching jobs away from black people. And so now people from other parts of the country really have no reason to migrate to D.C. any longer because there's no jobs, there's no opportunities for them. Here's Manuel in Washington. Manuel, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, thank you, Kojo. And uh, hello to the author there. I have a recollection, a very fond recollection to contribute. I went to a Catholic high school out in Montgomery County, and um, that was mostly white but mixed to some extent, some Latins as well. And during the 1960s, the, I would think much of the East, maybe the nation, was uh, held in the grip of a soul music uh, craze. We just loved soul music. Everyone did. And I'm glad to say one of my fondest memories of high school is going down to the Howard Theater a few times, where we saw these fabulous reviews and with some of the mega stars 
um, appearing, performing, and the crowd absolutely loved it. Everyone loved it. And we even staged a soul review, a Motown review in our high school in honor of this um, type of this craze that was going on. So it's a, I'd say it's a fond recollection and very much marked the cultural life of our, of the kids in our high school. Um, And this goes back half a century now. Manuel, thank you very much for your call. You underline a lot of what is in this book. Brianna Thomas, can you talk about the relationship between Howard University and U Street? Remind us when and why Howard was founded. Yes, definitely. So Howard is really um, the the center and the social hub for black people for when it comes to education, when it comes to hanging out, when it comes to congregating, Howard becomes what is known as the black Mecca. Uh, Howard is established in 1867 during the Reconstruction era, and it's um, established out of what is known as the Freedmen's Bureau. And this was a place to help newly freed slaves get jobs, get housing, and um have an education. And so out of this, we have Howard University, which really becomes this staple for the black community, um, not just within U Street, but in the nation. It attracts a lot of scholars, young professionals, um, entrepreneurs, and it creates this cultural boom. Uh, journalist Mary Ann Shad is the one who actually coined Howard as the black Mecca, but it was this time of mass pilgrimage to the area of U Street because Howard opened up so many opportunities. Uh, it attracted the creator of black history, Carter G. Woodson, and um, the famed lawyer who's known as Killing Jim Crow, Charles Hamilton Houston, and then his famed student, Thurgood Marshall, who was the hero of winning the uh, Brown versus Board of Education case. And so Howard University really has these major players um, in play on U Street that aren't just educating one another, but then they're also taking their education and they're opening banks like Industrial Savings Bank. And then these banks are funding black businesses. So you have this boom that's not just political, that's not just social or not just um, activism, but then it's also very economical and it really creates this uh, catalyst for black advancement in U Street that you see an impact nationwide. Here now is Mike in Crystal City. Mike, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello, Kojo, and to your guest. I'm wondering if the book has families associated with uh, D.C. I'll give you one example. There's a family, uh, Daniel Murrah, and he worked at the Library of Congress. And as you stated, when Wilson came in, he was demoted. And that was the thing that was going on back then. But a lot of congressmen from other areas eventually moved here, like PBS Pinchback, uh, Blanche uh, uh, Bruce. So I'm just wondering if those families were mentioned. Uh, Dunbar, all those, um, Dunbar's like a feeder to Howard University. And Dunbar back then was like a who's who uh, list of people. In fact, the Divine Nine, about half of the um, founders from those fraternities and universities, I mean, uh, sororities, went to um, uh, Dunbar High School. So I'm just curious. Yes, I'm there's, sorry. A, I'm just there's, curious. A great, there's a great deal about Dunbar. Go ahead, please, Brianna Thomas. 
Yes, definitely. So that was one of the biggest things about my book. Um, that if you get the book, you'll see the back of the book is called The Voices of U Street because I started as a journalist and not a historian, right? And so my connection to U Street is the narratives from my family, from my grandmother. And so what I wanted to do was make sure I included strong community narratives and family members. And so I have um, the Mitchell family from Industrial Savings, the Ali family from Bench Chili Bowl. I actually have um, Daniel Murray is in the book, um, actually a whole subsection all about his demotion um, working for the government. And Dunbar High School is a major feature in my book as well because Dunbar High School is special because it was the first uh, public school that admitted black students in the entire nation. And so like you said, people came to U Street and you were going really two places. You were going to Howard University to either be a teacher or be taught, or you were going to M Street High School is what it was known as at the time to be a teacher or be taught. And speaking of members of Congress, um, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton actually wrote the foreword to my book, and she was a student at Dunbar High School. And when I interviewed her, she just talked about how um, important education was at U Street at the time and how it really created this self-pride for Black people that they didn't feel inferior to um, people of other races. They didn't feel inferior to white people because they were highly educated. Dunbar High School had the top students um, literally in the nation. So, yes, a lot of that is in my book. Thank you very much for your call. According to your book, Alexander Roby Shepard is a controversial figure. Can you talk a little bit about how he shaped the district and about his role in D.C.'s development and growth? Yes, definitely. So um, Alexander Roby Shepard, or is better known as the boss Shepard, um, he comes into the city and he's really um, looking to revitalize, or at least that's how he uh, projects it or sells it to black people. Because at the time, the U Street is, does not look like really anything. It's not polished. Um, and so he decides that he really wants to create this government that is consolidated. At the time, D.C. is operating on this uh, territorial government where there are three sections, Washington City, Georgetown, and Washington County. Now, he wants to create a consolidated government because this way you kind of take the power and the voting rights away from the people, and you can make this uh, government where everything is run from the people that have the money, from the property owners, for the real estate developers, for someone like himself, Boss Shepard. Now, he He's a really good friend with President Ulysses Grant. And because of this friendship, he's really able to weave his way into the government, although he started off in D.C. as just a plumber. And out of his um, out of his uh, legislation and out of his lobbying, really, we get to a place where black men are granted the right to vote in 1867. It's protected in 1869 with the passage of the 15th Amendment. And then when Shepard comes along in 1871, we see those rights taken away completely. And Frederick Douglass notes this as the great betrayal. And this is a big blow for D.C. when it becomes a consolidated government. The reason being is because D.C. won't see any sort of self-governance until about a century later with the Home Rule Act. Here now is um, Dem in Arlington, Virginia. Dem, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, yes, how you doing? Um, I, I'm, I was kind of confused of why Howard get to get put into the conversation in anything black because, as my knowledge, uh, he was responsible for uh, slaughtering millions of Indian lives. 
And I also wanted to um, note that I wanted to see if you was going to uh, kind of like have a book on all the slaves that was sold, slave names that were sold in front of the U.S. Capitol, since I have no recollection of no type of um, condolences or any type of reparations for, you know, all the lives that were sold that had to walk down to the South on barefoot. Okay, this is not that type of book, and I don't know if Brianna Thomas uh, is contemplating on such a book. So let's talk about what you asked about that in this book. Tell us about the formation of Howard University and General Howard. Yeah, so Jennifer, General Oliver Otis Howard, he um, actually he gets this charter to build Howard University. And this comes from a place of, um, as I mentioned earlier, free, the Freedmen's Bureau. Now, um, I can't speak to all of what Howard uh, did back in that day. I did not live in that era. But I do know that at the time, he did help um, create a positive environment for black people from this bureau because it helped black people get employment and housing and education. And what a lot of people don't know about Howard University is that it prided itself from the very beginning of being diverse. It was never a university that was created just for black people, although it was open and welcoming for black people, which attracted a lot of African-Americans to the district. Um, the first graduating class of Howard was of mixed race. And what made it even more special, the first graduating class of Howard also included women. So that tells you why Howard University is so important and so pivotal to be included in my book, because it really is the catalyst for all things U Street, especially when it comes to uh, women empowerment, when it comes to black people having a voice and really having a shot at any type of fairness and success. Thank you very much for your call, Dem. Here is Chris in Trinidad in the district. Chris, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, the author. I'd like to ask if, uh, if there was any way today to recreate that enthusiasm and excitement that we had on U Street when Cab and Duke was there. Is there any way to recreate that today? And if so, would it push us forward in society as black people? Well, Brianna Thomas, U Street today is full of bars and restaurants, but as our caller Clive points out, it's now no longer the hub that it was once for black culture. Many of its famous jazz establishments, for example, have, cold, uh, have closed. So talk about that. Yeah, so I interviewed a lot of people for my book and for this project. And one of the questions I always asked at the end was, can we have another Black Broadway? Can history repeat itself? And a lot of times the answer was no. The answer was no and no because we do not have the... Um, Black banks fund, funding black businesses. We don't even have the black population on U Street or the district itself any longer. Um, when you think about how long music played a part on U Street, um, thinking about the funk uh, era and thinking about go-go music and things like that, well, that came out of a place of not just Black Broadway, but transitioning into where D.C. was known as Chocolate City, you know, in 1970. Uh, the district was 70% black people. Now, that's not the same numbers when you look at them today, which I have um, detailed in my book. And so I don't think that there will be necessarily a renewal of the same um, kind of 
black music everywhere, but I do believe that we are making our way to getting back to that. I mean, look at the Don't Mute DC protest in 2019. That was black people and young black people, millennials, right, saying, no, we we remember our ancestors partied on the street. We remember, uh, we, we love Chuck Brown still. We love all the music. We still enjoy going to Go-Go's. And we're not going to shut off our, our music that matters to us. And out of that, we get legislation that makes DC the official music for i mean that makes go-go music the official music for washington dc so that shows you that music and black music specifically still has power on ustry but i don't know if it has enough power to become another black broadway indeed during the height of the dc black broadway period there were more according to this book more than 300 black owned businesses on u street is that correct yes that is correct here is Patrice in Southeast Washington. Patrice, your turn. Hi, good afternoon, Kojo and Miss Thomas. I've just really been delighted by this conversation. I did not know about the book. I intend to get it. It's so funny that you mentioned the Don't Mute DC um, activism on U Street. And because of the conversation, I just have been imagining a live experience of your book. Do you have any plans to? branch out into merchandising or create like a, a Black Broadway festival so that we can come together and celebrate this legacy? Are you looking for volunteers? I'm just very <laughs> excited and invigorated. Um, so I was just curious if you had, you know, any plans to um, help us to sort of relive what your work is and your narrative actually out on the street. Brianna Thomas. Yeah, so I will tell you something that you can join in. Speaking of festivals, so the Funk Parade will be in May, and their theme this year is Black Broadway because the Funk Parade was founded on U Street. And so what they are doing is they're really looking at the history of U Street and including Black Broadway. Now, it will be virtual this year, but you'll still get the festival musical kind of feel. And so that could be, that's definitely one thing that'll kind of bring Black Broadway to life. Another thing is at some point, I am going to start doing virtual walking tours and then when things get safer outside I will start doing some tours outdoors so if you just stay tuned you can um, look me up on Facebook I know that um, this is being live tweeted right now or follow me on Instagram at the Black Broadway but I will be keeping um, all of my readers up to date on what's to come but yes Black Broadway will become interactive uh, probably this summer Thank you very much for your call, Patrice. Uh, Brianna, has this has writing this book changed your perception, your understanding of race in America? Yes. So this book has um, definitely changed my perception of race in America, Um, I think, for the better. Now, of course, when you have to sit down and journal the history of our ancestors, you have to journal the history of slave coffles that literally were... uh, slave pens and slave coffles and black people being chained right out front of the Capitol, and especially being born and raised in the DMV, that is very disheartening. But at the same time, I was able to see how black people uh, made something out of nothing. Um, as a culture, we have always been great at making a lot of very sweet, tasty lemonade out of very, very sour lemons. And that is my perspective after studying this book is that, you know, if Jim Crow laws uh, force black people 
people to not be able to sit where they wanted to be, not be able to own property and not be able to go to school. But in turn, black people decided we're going to respond with owning our own and creating 300 black owned businesses and 100 black owned churches. And we're going to write our own music and we're going to get paid for it. It really gives you this perspective of inspiration and really motivates you, right, to do whatever you want to do and to create impact and change. So, yes, it's changed my perspective, but in a good way. Brianna Thomas is the author of Black Broadway in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, so glad that I was invited. Today's segment with the director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture was produced by Sidney Grannon, and our segment on Black Broadway was produced by Richard Cunningham. Be sure to tune in tomorrow at noon. After 23 years on air, I'm hosting my last Kojo show. Of course, Friday's Politics Hour will continue, but for our final broadcast, I'll be joined by special guests to reflect on what this program has meant to the community and what the community has meant to us. That all starts tomorrow at noon. Until then, thank Thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Namdi. The Kojo Namdi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Cindy Grannon, Lauren Marco, Kirk Gardinier, Richard Cunningham, and Ines Renike. Our managing producer is Ingelisa Schrobstor. Our broadcast engineer is Rashad Young. Today's engineer was Mike Kidd. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.